maybe for the better part of the week you've been reading and trying to figure out how Brexit actually impacts your life. If you're like, the Britons had it coming to them, this is what this weekend is about, right? We declared our independence. They can declare whatever independence they want and don't matter because America. Um, if you have been reading about it, it's been fascinating because actually the Brexit referendum, whether or not the United Kingdom would leave their affiliation with the uh, European Union, which again is probably the geekiest thing I've said in a long time out loud, but this movement, whether to remain or to leave, actually got caught up in an anti-intellectual movement. So there was this idea that, you know, like we need to leave this because we can get ourselves back to the good old days. Dare I even say, make Great Britain great again. One British pro-Brexit politician named Michael Grove gave this quote uh, publicly. And yes, the, the picture matches the expression. He said, uh, the British people are sick of experts. And, you know, as much as that's funny, it actually captured uh, the feeling of many of the people there. That it was time for, for us just to stop listening to the people who think they know so much and just to be us. Friends, really what was fascinating about Brexit is that when you looked at the, the breakdown of the vote in Great Britain, or in the United Kingdom, the vote did not break down necessarily along political lines as much as it broke down along age lines. Whereas overwhelmingly, older uh, UKers felt that they should leave and start anew where the young people were ones who were saying, no, we should stay. And maybe now, more than ever, there's a divide between young and old. And maybe even better to say than a divide, there's a tension between youth and aged, right? So the younger people in the crowd today might recognize that the word adult, which used to be primarily a noun, is now known as a verb, Right? And probably many of you have used the term, I can't adult today, because it's this funny thing where it's like, it, it, what it's trying to do, honestly, is show that tension between, I want to be youthful and fun and footloose and, and fancy free, but I actually have to be responsible. And what this issue actually speaks to, and what I think this tension in the United Kingdom speaks to, is this concept of maturity, Maturation. What does it mean for us to change who we are now and to become a better version of ourselves? And this time we're going to find as we open up the scriptures in our study of First and Second Kings. And we've talked about, for those joining in, you know, I'm not going to drop Game of Thrones references all throughout. But it is useful to say is that the scandals that occur throughout First and Second Kings could be very well a plot for an HBO series. And we today are going to talk about the next in line of kings. If you've been with us, we started off the book talking about the end of the life of David. And David, we know David was a historical figure. And he was a king, ruler over all of Israel. And he is the one who actually established Israel as a kingdom. His son Solomon, who came after him, for better or for worse, when he was wise and he was a dope, actually helped to secure that and make it one of the most affluent, one of the wealthiest nations on the face of the earth that time. And as generations 
continue to go on. Now we are at the story of the grandson of David and Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And we will study him today because it's important to see what will he be able to do with the car keys that dad and grandpa have given him. So can he mature as he sits on the throne? So we are in 1 Kings chapter 12 this morning. There are blue Bibles in the pews if you want to read along with it. Does somebody have that page number? Kathy, you have a 248 in your blue Bible if you need to see that. Among the visitors we have is Josh Nisley. Josh, who used to be an elder here at the church, we only kicked him out when he moved to a different area code and time zone. Or It's not a time zone anymore. It's the same time zone. So that's something that Indiana got right, I guess. I don't know. But I think the sun doesn't rise until 9 o'clock over there. I'm really confused at how it all works. Suffice to say, we're excited uh, for everybody that's here today, but I'm just glad to see Josh, a good friend and a good uh, elder of our congregation. And when you come back, we make you do stuff. So you're going to read for us this morning. We're going to start First Kings chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. Josh, read this out loud for us, please. All right. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all the Israelites had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nabat, heard this, he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon. He returned from Egypt. So they went for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam answered, go away for three days and then come back to me. So the people went away. You were thrilled to come to this 4th of July weekend because you knew I would talk about politics. And here I've already talked about UK politics. And now I will talk about the internal politics of the nation of Israel and the ancient Near East. Gripping, yes, no American flags are flying behind me. So here's the deal. Is that understanding that Israel was becoming a nation in a time where keeping nations together was very difficult. This is a thousand years before Jesus was born. So usually kingdoms during this time had a very short lifespan because as quickly as they could grab power, there was no way for them to keep the power. But David was the one who was able to secure the kingdom. Important to understand that it's not like all Israel, after they came to the promised land, was like, hey, let's all stay together. They kind of went their separate ways. There were 12 tribes and 11 of them had specific land areas. So the unification of that actually happened under David. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, what we see is that he goes, he makes a covenant with all the other Israelites. And he's like, hey guys, are we cool? I'll be your king. Like, we'll, we'll all be on the same side and you will have benefits and rights, privileges therein. And David says, sure, or the people say, sure, we'll sign up to follow you, David. So whereas he pulled it all together... His son Solomon maximized that, and he actually made it an industrial complex. And as much as we might want to romanticize and say, it's cool when our nation is big and powerful and strong, there are always people who build that and pay the price. And Solomon was able to grow Israel to become a major world power, but it was on the backs of Israelites who would work hard and force labor. So during this transition, when Solomon is dead and there's a new king, Rehoboam, on the scene... The question that the people of Israel have is, hey, are we going to get a break? Are we going to settle down and slow things down? Because we need to be able to live our lives. 
Um, it, basically, this is very similar to pre-World War II America. And if you go back and watch documentaries or read books about how our, our country developed during the Second World War, one of the reasons that we were able to win in Europe and in the Pacific was the idea that our entire country left all of their individualistic pursuits to the side and they combined to be a nation. And that's actually why we got the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, which were a highly individualistic time. They said, hey, we did team, now let's do me, right? There, there is no I in team, but there's a me. You just have to do the switched words, correct? And the ruler now here is Rehoboam. Just getting the scene to Rehoboam, all we know is that he is still a younger guy. He is the age of 41, and because I'm 40, then he was a very young, vigorous, strapping man. Probably good-looking. And here's the issue then, is as this all comes together, Rehoboam says, let me meet, up picture of him, pinky extended for later things, his time period, we know he lived from 972 to 915 BC, we'll come back on that, and here basically, map, is the divide of the land of Israel today, in the south, if you go to the bottom of the line, you see Jerusalem, this was the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, Okay, this is basically the, the area from which David and Solomon hailed from. And the land to the north of this line was the northern tribes of Israel. There was another nine of them that had, live, that had land. And the meeting then took place at Shechem, which was still in the north. But it was in the south-north, if that helps you out at all. One other thing, which is going to become important for us next week, we just have to touch on the presence of this guy really quickly, is a guy named Jeroboam who's on the scene because it mentions it right here. Jeroboam actually was one of uh, Rehoboam's father, Solomon, was one of his favorite guys until he realized he got a word from the Lord saying he might end up being a leader of Israel. And then we get 2 Kings 11, Solomon tried to kill him. So very wisely, he left the land and went to Egypt, by the way. We've been, if you study the Bible, anytime anybody's going to Egypt, there's something shifty going on. The only time it doesn't is when Jesus goes into Egypt as a baby, when his parents flee and come out. And it's supposed to be the final, we're done with Egypt moment of the Bible. But this idea that Jeroboam is at the scene is important. What's the issue? They want to make sure that there's a good pace of growth. And here's what happens. So when Rehoboam gets to Shechem and they have the meeting and they said, look, your dad was killing us. We're exhausted. Cut us some slack. Rehoboam wisely says, let me go away and think about it. And I will offer us that as we're looking at keys to maturation as we go through this text, this this is something that we need to point out, friends. Do you have the patience to stop and do nothing sometimes? And I'm not talking to veg out, Netflix, and or chill, however the case may be. What I'm looking at, though, is that you have the ability when something important needs to happen, instead of forcing a decision, to stop and say, let me analyze what is going on. True, some of us do that to the, you know, extreme, right? Paralysis by analysis. We can't make a decision to save our lives. If that's you, don't sweat it. If you're the other end of the spectrum, that's me, who I'm like, I will decide immediately something and what I want. Sometimes the best thing we can do and to be able to think and pray and contemplate something is just to stop. And this is a moment of wisdom. This is the point where Rehoboam basically has the opportunity to nail this. And by the way, Proverbs, I think, speaks to this. Whoever's patient and has has great understanding, but one uh, who is quick-tempered displays folly and foolishness. So just, do you have the ability to stop and be 
and think. Second thing that we're going to see, as Josh reads here in the next few verses, is that Rehoboam uses that time not to just look inwardly, but to look externally and to ask counsel. He goes to two different groups. Josh, read verses 6 and 7 of 1 Kings 12 for the first group. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. They replied, If today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. There is a certain maturity that comes with age. Let us not overstate this because I've met a bunch of older people who should know better that do stupid, stupid things, correct? So let's not say it's applicable in every situation. However, the one thing that age does produce in us is life experience. We've seen things. We've interacted with people. We know more. And therefore, it is supposed to be the older we get, the more mature we get. Recognize within all this, yeah, we're going to make mistakes. We're not going to do so flawlessly. But we should be on a path of self-improvement. So here, Solomon basically goes to the older advisors and says, Hey, the northern kingdoms want me to lay off the accelerator. What should we do? And Solomon's older advisor says they are correct. Your father put it on them all the time. He was wiping them out. We need a period where we can just be, consolidate, and just lay off the people a little bit. And if you do that, in the long term, it will benefit you. They actually had a view of government, which I would say is more biblical than many of us actually have. And as we look at the weekend, the reason why we can fly our American flags but be pissed off at our country is the idea is that we don't see the government working as it was intended to do. Because when government works well, it should serve the people. It should collaborate with them, not rule over them needlessly. And this is always the frustration that we have with government. So if you're, you know, want to be your anarchist this weekend and fly your flag upside down and burn it, I would advise just not to because it's in poor shape and poor form. But... The thing is, is recognize, is as much as you don't think that this country is perfect, it never is, correct? We see this in the scriptures. We talked about this earlier in Kings. Every time that the government, we've tried to say, let's save ourselves through, you know, government, it just does not work. It doesn't mean we need to hate and, and to destroy, but at the same time, it needs a realistic perspective where it's honest and faith. And what this group said was, hey, just be Just love on your people. Be a servant leader. Show them that you're willing to humble yourselves and they will take you the rest of the way where you want to go. Okay, so counsel from the elders. Now we're going to go to the other end of the spectrum. Josh, if you'll read verses 10 and 11, please. The young men who had grown up with him replied, tell these people who have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but made... But make our yoke lighter. Tell them, (laughs) my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. And go read that next sentence. Oh, sorry. Uh, My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Okay, so to ruin this, he's going to take the advice of the younger people, right? Like you've read through it. We skipped that verse and all this stuff. He's going to take this advice. Now... A few things about the advice that I love. The first thing is, is it talks here about my little finger being thicker than my dad's waist. And actually, in the Hebrew language here, here, it's much, much more scandalous. 
because the word for waist here is actually a word for thigh. And you're like, what does a thigh have to do with this? Well, there's a relation in the ancient world between thigh and manhood. Friends, this is a burn on girth here, right? He basically is saying, I'm more of a man than my dad ever was. And we remember a couple weeks ago, if you were with us, dude had like a thousand women on the side. So he's just like, yeah, he is calling a shot. He is trying to say, look, I'm a bigger man than that dude was. So I am going to just go at it even harder in the metaphor, which is less scandalous, but more direct that we understand. He's like, he whipped you here. I'm going to whip you with scorpions, which is, I think, scientifically impossible during the time. I'm not even sure how that works. But the reality is, is that he says, I'm going to take the counsel of the youth, my young advisor, who are saying, no, in order for me to assert my authority, I am going to go medieval on them. Now, here's the thing. Something I can appreciate. Rehoboam, I said, he's... Again, he's that great age of 40, 41. He's right there. But here's the thing when you're in this age where I'm at right now. You're seriously caught between two worlds. Because there's the recognition now that I am not uh, as young as I once was, right? Uh, I'm glad that Andrew, his family's here this weekend. I did the, the, uh, his, his and Molly's wedding a few weeks ago, right? It's interesting because I've been doing weddings now for 20 years. It's my, it's my, my bit, what to do but usually i'm doing weddings and i'm the young guy who just relates to the couple because it's like you know i'm just still there and then we're talking and then basically you know it's andrew's mom's brother is right about my age like and was friends with my cousin like we're talking about this and there's this point where i'm like i i, I am just as close actually closer in age to andrew's parents than to andrew himself are you tracking with me i am not as youthful as i once was and because of a recognition of this, and I'm just going to say for all of us, is that there's this, this desire for us sometimes to cling on to youth. When you're caught in this area, sometimes you lean in toward that side of, I'm, I'm going to be boss, right? Like, I'm going to put on some hipster skinny jeans. I'm going to grow a, a handlebar mustache and wax that sucker up. I'm going to do everything I can do to stay in the youthful young crowd. And I really think this is what Rehoboam is leaning in on. He's like, I could take the wisdom of the older advisors, but dude, I'm chill and I'm boss too. Which I don't know if any of those phrases are still used today, which probably shows where I am on this spectrum. The reality of this is, however, is that he looked at the young advisors. And I have to say this about these young advisors. Because there's this aspect of it. It's just like, they're just jerks. They're just evil. You know what? I really believe they thought it was good advice. Because they were likely, if they were advisors, they, they weren't of the working class. They were probably of the nobility. And therefore, they had grown up in a place where the last few years in Solomon's reign was awesome for them. They didn't have to do the forced labor. They didn't have a life of struggle that the major populace did. So they're like, here, here's some advice. Let's make it better for us and let's put it back on the people, right? As I'm looking at Rob is wearing this communist shirt and it's just like, it's all, it's all emanating out. I didn't even get that you wore that this weekend on purpose, didn't you? You are such a rebel. Man, you are so rebellious. That was great. 
Walter Brueggemann, we talked about him, Old Testament scholar, said this about those young advisors. They likely are the ones who are so happy under Solomon, who have never known anything but extravagant privilege and a heavy sense of their own entitlement. They likely take their affluence as normal and have never known anything other than a standard of living supported by heavy taxation. What he is saying right here is like they gave him this counsel because it was good for them. And they thought what was good for them was good for everybody. Friends, this brings us to a key aspect of our maturation process, which is you need to have the ability to empathize with another's perspective. If you are only viewing the world in your own bubble and not seeing the struggles that other people have, then you're not living this out. Talking about my, my friend Lamar right here. We were talking right before church and we were talking about he, he, he's living in a life right now. He's doing his best. He's living a life with some struggles, right? And sometimes it's easy for me to get wrapped up in my life. I have my own list of struggles, you know, you know, stuff that Steve creates, but then things that sometimes happen around me and I think, oh, it's so bad. But then I, you know, then I, I meet somebody like Lamar. He's like, I've got a whole different set of struggles. And the one thing Lamar, you said to me earlier was you said, man, there's a lot of people worse out than me. The ability to be able to empathize with somebody else's perspective is key. And this is what Rehoboam did not have the ability to do. He could only see within his world. And in his world, this was wise counsel. And what he's, he's going to see is that it doesn't work out. Josh, will you read verses 16 and 19 through us for us, please? When all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, O Israel, look after your own house, O David. So the Israelites went home. But as for the Israelites who were living in the towns of Judah, Rehoboam still ruled over them. King Rehoboam sent out Adoniram, who was in charge of forced labor, but all Israel stoned him to death. King Rehoboam, however, managed to get into his chariot and escaped to Jerusalem. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. So a key Old Testament occurrence happens right here. So this is something if you want to study the Bible and you want to understand what's happening in the Old Testament, you need to understand that this was a huge moment in biblical history. And that is the moment that even though the kingdom came together and God prophesied all these blessings for the kingdom... Ultimately, that kingdom splits, and this split is going to lead in hundreds of years to their ultimate demise. So when we look at the map and the way that it's set out now, uh, and again, our coloration isn't good, but that green to the south area becomes the southern kingdom, which is Ju- it's now known, you know, it's known throughout the Bible as Judah, even though it's Judah and Benjamin. Everybody forget about Benjamin. Forget about Dre. Forget about Benjamin. It's all good. Their capital remains in Jerusalem. And we're going to see, I have Dan on the map just because I didn't take Dan out. He's a nice guy. In the North Kingdom, though, that's a major place of worship. And then there's the capital of Samaria that is made here. And again, for those biblical people, you hear Samaria, you think in the New Testament, Samaritans. So there's going to be an interplay right here within all of this. But basically now, through the rest of these books of First and Second Kings, and through most of this biblical history, the South Kingdom, which is known as Judah, separates from the north kingdom known as Israel, and there's conflict. Rehoboam is like, I'm not going to take this split easily. Like, look, I'm the king. I said I would do this, and they said, see ya, see ya, wouldn't want to be ya, going back to our tents, right? So, at this point, he said, I'm going to send up my, 
my, my guy Adoniram, or, uh, Adoniram up here, uh, and he is actually the workhorse guy, you know? He's like, okay, everybody, let's get back to work. We can do this, you know? Can we build it? Yes, we can. No, throwing stones at him to the extent that he is dead. And by the way, the idea that they're throwing stones here, even though it's a thousand years ago, you're like, that's what they did. I saw Monty Python and stuff. Understand this is that really, that was not a, uh, a nuanced way of execution there, you know, where they could have done any sorts of things to him. The idea that he's throwing stones is just like, this is a workman's revolt. They basically said, no, we're not going to take it anymore. Stone's dead. And then Rehoboam has to get away. He has to flee to save his own life. But he doesn't take that. Then he's like, okay, you guys are throwing rocks. I've got chariots. I've got, you know, artillery installed bombers. I've got everything. Like, we're going to bring all of the firepower up to you. And as he's getting ready for the battle, God brings a prophet to his way and says, hey, Rehoboam, this is the word of the Lord. Don't go up to fight against them. Just everybody go home. I'm behind this. I did this. The one other smart thing that Rehoboam does in this story is that he says, okay, I guess that's how God has it. He goes back home and the kingdom is split. So when we look at this, really, and when we read a biblical text, there's many lessons to be gleaned. But basically, it comes down to the person of Rehoboam. And you might say, well, it was really his advisors. No, it was the influences that he had around him and the counsel that he chose to take. And he took a path of immaturity by which to rule over his kingdom and it failed. And I think what all of us need to recognize no matter how young or old we are, that our Christian maturity is a key aspect to us owning and becoming good people of faith. What does it mean then to be good at Christian adulting, right? Like what does it mean for you and I to be able to take these lessons, these negative lessons, and reverse them and make it a positive thing for us? Well, it's just first us trying to figure out what this concept of maturity is. Because what's a good definition of maturity? uh, Really, it's perspectival, right? Because your maturity might actually be different than I. So in order to solve this, I went to the internet, to Reddit nonetheless, and I just typed in, what is maturity? And uh, there was a lot of like, you know, red, you know, don't click on this type things. But then there were some of these responses, and this is why you go here. You have to sift through the garbage heap to get wisdom. One person wrote, when you realize that $5,000 is a lot of money to spend, but not a lot of money to have. Another said that doing things that terrify you because you must. Have you had that experience where you're like, I have no desire, no want, but I know I have to do this. You get it done. And you go back out and do it tomorrow even quicker. Letting go of conversations before they turn into arguments. Owning a failure and not making excuses for it. Being reliable instead of relying on others. The ability to change your opinion when presented with new facts. Booking your own dental appointment. What does it mean for us to mature? So as we look through the scriptures, what's interesting in the ancient literature, there's an entire book of Proverbs, which we, you know, attribute much of that to Solomon that we read. And it's just like, oh, just do all this stuff, right? So there's lots of different answers right there. And even though some of the Proverbs are, they're, they're short and they, they pack a punch and they're good, uh, un- understand that 
even many times the Proverbs um, themselves, and this is one of the things that biblical critics, they find it in other ancient literature too. I'm not saying that anybody copied, but it's just base worldly wisdom, right? Like all of this right here. In in essence, you know, maybe take the $5,000, any of this or the dental appointment, any of this could like be reworded and end up in the Bible. Like we could put a verse, if I put a verse on some of these, you might be like, oh, that's good advice. And Hezekiah 6, 3, you know, like, you know, be reliable instead of relying on others. That makes sense. Like, you know, when we look at it at that point, it doesn't necessarily resonate with us. Everything that we do as believers needs to be funneled through the gospel of Christ, through Jesus, through the cross, and what that means to us. So if we're going to land someplace on here, there's a text that I land on a lot. I, I was thinking about this as I was writing this this week, is that I end up in Philippians 2 a lot. And I don't know if it's because it's a text I had memorized early, but when you read Philippians 2, I believe there's just so much in there that is just brilliant and it's transformative that it will work out. I'm just going to grab one verse that is usually a throwaway verse within there, Philippians 2, which I would say this is probably a more concise explanation of Christian maturity than almost anything else in the scriptures. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. And what I like about the way that Paul works into this is that there's this two negative things that we sometimes can act in, our our selfish ambition. What is going to get me to where I need to be? Or vain conceit, which is what is going to make me look good so that when I arrive, that I'm looking good and I'm getting where I want to be. And where Paul comes through is in humility, value others above yourself. And by the way, the reason I love Philippians 2 is that after this, it gets to Jesus and it shows, hey, if you're looking at your textbook case of humility, it's all in Jesus. In trying to restate this in as simplistic terms as I think I can articulate, I landed on this. Less me, more them. I would say that this is a biblical concept that is in line with the gospel that would help you and I to become mature Christian believers. I think it's this simple. Because recognize when I say this, this isn't some sort of self-help mantra where if I can just repeat this and get this, then I'm empowering myself to do this. No, this is rooted within the gospel, okay? Because, again, why humility? Because Jesus was the most humble force who ever walked the face of the earth. He was God. He made the universe. If anybody had reason to brag, he did. And not only did he come here and live among schleps, but he said, I'm not even going to bring all my powers with me. That's true humility, right? He died for us. That's as humble as it gets. So this, as a mantra, I think lacks the power if I try to use that as personal empowerment rather than let it be rooted in who Jesus is. So if you have a gospel basis for this and you start to think every day when I wake up, what do I need today? Less me, more of them. If I start to contemplate lives of other people and value that more than I even value where I'm going to be, then you'll see after a while that your decision-making process is becoming more and more gospel-centric. It's becoming more like Christ. 
And in just trying to even illustrate this, I'm going to drop something. You know, I have pet peeves, and that's the blessing of preaching, because what you do is you get to drop all your pet peeves in front of other people. And if you tie it to a scripture verse, then you're actually spiritual in doing this. So bear with me the way I perceive this. But there's a popular phrase in today's society that was actually based in great comedy, Parks and Recreation, a phrase that has become commonplace. If you can drop that for me now, I would just give you. What what phrase am I going to land on? Treat yourself now. I admit I've used this phrase. So it's not like, you know, and this is why pet peeves are best, is if you can pull things where you are just as guilty of, it's good. But why do we say the idea of treat yourself? We say treat yourself because we think, you know what, you deserve this. Like you've had a rough life. You deserve to go ahead and, and you know, supersize that grande latte to a venti. Is that right in my Starbucks lore? I don't even know. Like, I don't do it. Go in and I'm like, I take a large, like a what? I'm like, don't do this to me. You know, I'm just treating myself. But here's the idea. Why do we, and, and then the thing that we sometimes do is that then we'll put stuff on social media, which is like, here I am, you know, it's like, I'm treating myself. And, you're, and I, then you see the inevitable, you deserve this. And I'm like, why do we do that? You know, because like, I'm not even going to get whatever reward you have. Why am I affirming that within your life? You know why I'm affirming that? Because then I'm hoping that eventually when it comes back to, if you treat yourself, then I can treat myself. And then, you know, it's this idea of like, it's, there's, it's the yin to the yang of my spiritual treat yourself religion. Because if you're doing it and I'm doing it, then we're all doing it and it's all good, right? And I'm just going to say this, which is just funny, but as much as, listen, I appreciate it, I've used it, but really it's just, that's not the essence of Christian maturation. You're like, Steve, you ruin everything. So it's a pet peeve, but I'm using it as an example. And if it doesn't fit exactly, just focus on this because this is what I'm trying to say, is that we need less of us, you know? Because every time I think, Steve, you know what? You, you know, you deserve to have this or that. You know, like you're enti- you, you know, you, you, you do all these different things in your life. You're entitled to that. Every time I'm doing that, I just get closer and closer to me and further away from what God calls me to do is that to consider others better than ourselves in humility. And friends, that's tough enough to do when we make up excuses for ourselves. So again, is the point of all this to make you feel guilty? Partially, of course, because that's what scripture does. If I engage with the gospel every time I do, you know, there should be a part that just rubs me the wrong way. It's like, you know, I cling tighter to Jesus, leave the stuff that is self-incriminating, just, you know, it'll work out, friends. It's just this aspect that less of us, more of other people, this week, if you just put that, like write that someplace down, you know, whether it be in a little post that you keep in your car, if you're one of those people that uses, uh, you know, dry erase markers on your mirror to talk yourself into something, I think if we start to live this way, we will see ourselves grow in maturity in Christ. The scripture that we read at the beginning of this is a scripture that we ought to remember in Second Peter 3.18, that our call the imperative that we have is to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Savior, Jesus Christ. The more we become like him, the more we grow. And why do we care about that, people? Because that's, that's what we've been called through. All the goodness that we want to see in the world can be really explained and it is incarnate within the life of Jesus. And that's why we're here and that's why we live this out. So let's watch our counsel, take some time to consider things, but... Let's grow. Let's have less of us, more of others. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we had to worship together. 
when the people of God gather, Father, whether uh, we're at different churches this morning or in this church visiting, however this works out, we understand that it's a very good thing. And Father, you are calling us to maturation. You want us to be better tomorrow than we are today. So Father, on that process, we just ask to help keep us from sin. We're self-centered. We're egotistic. We, we have, you know, even when we're on our best days, well-intentioned, we, we, we make decisions that are selfish sometimes. Help us to be less selfish. Help us to be more selfless. To think of others. To show them love. To consider their plight. To empathize with them, Father. To try to become who you are calling us to be. All of this, God, we recognize. This doesn't save us. Me getting better doesn't mean I'm going to get to the point where I've earned heaven. Can't do any of that. We know that it's only because of your son, Jesus. And for he, we give you thanks this morning. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.